Well, good morning. If we haven't met one-on-one -on -one yet, uh, my name is Chris Blackman. I just came on staff recently as an intern here working with the middle school youth group students, and it's a real privilege to uh, be able to share God's word with you today. Our message is coming from Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, and we're going to be breaking it up in three different chunks this morning. As you're turning there, I'd like to start with a, just a quick question. Have you ever seen something so broken or beyond repair that it seemed pointless to try and save? Uh, the first car I ever owned was a 1987 Oldsmobile Cutlass Calais that I inherited from my grandparents after they passed away. Uh, you know, my grandparents, they didn't really drive a lot on it in their later years, and so like anytime you went over 55 miles an hour for more than 10 minutes, the uh, coolant would dump out the bottom and the engine would overheat. So the car had a lot of problems. Uh, and, you know, I took it to the mechanic a lot. And I remember kind of one of the last times I took it, the mechanic just gave me this look and was like, son, uh, the, the cost to repair this car exceeds the value of the car. You should just get a new one. I think, uh, you know, he was feeling very hopeless about that situation. Many times, I think when we look at the brokenness of the world, when we're in the midst of God's discipline in our lives, we can feel somewhat hopeless, and we can wonder if even this can be restored. So today, the kind of key truth in really simple words that I'd like to share with you is that God's restoration of the land here in Joel chapter 2 gives us hope that he is still with this people, and he still seeks to restore them. Give your ear to the reading of God's word, verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. In this section of Scripture, what I want us to really focus on uh, is kind of that beginning line there where it says, the Lord became jealous for his land. And if you can remember, in Joel, uh, kind of the beginning half, the Lord has been giving a word of judgment on his people. He's saying, you know, you have sinned, and I'm trying to call you back to me. I'm sending judgment on the land, whether that's through a locust army or an invasion of a real army or great fire or all three of those things. The Lord is saying, I'm using that as a vehicle to try to bring you to repentance, to bring you to this place of lament. And last week, we saw the Lord kind of extend this offer of hope. He's saying, if, if you repent, if you rend your heart, not your garment, then who knows, maybe the Lord will restore his people. And then finally here we see the kind of emphasis on the hope in Joel, that the Lord here is now acting to restore what he has taken away for a season from his people. We see that it describes the Lord's attitude as jealous, and that's not really a word we often use uh, in a positive way, right? When you hear someone talking about being jealous for something, we usually think of that as a negative thing. But many times in the Old Testament, the Lord describes his own attitude for his glory as jealous. 
The word really means a kind of a holy and very intense passion. We see in Exodus 34, God says, God, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. And many times when God is talking about his jealousy for his people, he's usually talking about it in a sense of judgment, right? His people have turned to idols, they've turned to other things. And God is saying, I'm jealous for my people to come back. And I'm so jealous that I'm going to send judgment on them for a time to remind them of our relationship. But here, very uniquely, in this part of Joel, he's using this term jealousy, actually, in a more positive way, saying, I'm jealous for my land and for my people. And because of the Lord's holy and intense passion for his people, he's actually going to restore them and bless them and remind them of the goodness of God after this season of repent and lament. So he goes on and says, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil that you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. If you remember earlier in Joel, the Lord had kind of taken away the grain and the wine and the oil, uh, and that's what they used in the temple in Israel for worshiping the Lord. The idea was, I'm going to deprive you of this for a season so that you can really feel the lack of God's presence at this time. You can really feel just what's missing in your life, that you need God to restore this to you. And so here that God is restoring that, he's saying, I want to restore worship in my community. I want to restore worship in my people's hearts. That not only does God care about you know, their physical bodies, that his people are well fed and taken care of, but he also is concerned about the status of their hearts. Is God's people in their heart worshiping the Lord as well? Are they worshiping as a community together? Or are we just doing it in name only? Have we not only rent our clothes, but rend our hearts, and are we also worshiping in spirit and truth? God's holy and intense passion is for his own glory lived out through his people here and now. So we see he's restoring the grain and the wine, and he says, I'll no longer make your reproach among the nations. And this is really hearkening back to, you know, in books like Deuteronomy, when God is talking about, if my people turn away from me, when I send judgment on them, the other nations are going to look at them and often say, like, man, their God is pretty harsh. Uh, man, like, they must have really sinned against their God in such a terrible way that he would discipline them in such a way. And so here he's saying, yes, right, I have disciplined you and I've called you to repentance, but now I'm bringing you into restoration, and such a restoration that all those people who were shocked at my discipline will also be shocked at my goodness to you, at my ability to restore all that I've taken away. This is kind of a real contrast, right? In the ancient world, uh, their idea of, you know, kind of gods and deities was that each country kind of had their own god. Um, so, you know, Babylon had theirs, and Assyria had theirs, and Egypt had theirs. And the idea was if one country conquered another, they'd say, oh, great, our god is tougher than yours. You know, it's like, my dad's bigger than yours. But they didn't really get that the one true God, the God of Israel, right, was God of all creation. And so even the judgment that came on Israel was not a sign that Babylon's gods were stronger than Israel's, but that God was sovereign even over bringing them into discipline as people for that time, and that he's also sovereign over now restoring them. That he's kind of poking that ideology of their world in that time in the face, saying, you think I can only bring judgment? Man, I can also bring amazing restoration. 
We see that God is calling his people now to live out their faith, yes, in repentance, but also in a life of now restoration, that God desires to be glorified in that joyful restoration and now in the joyful obedience of his people in the land. That the Lord very well could choose to wipe out his people altogether, start all over. And yet instead of doing that, he disciplines them for a season, yes, but then restores them. He says, yes, I am a God of righteous judgment, but also a God of mercy and goodness. And I want my people to understand both of those aspects of my character. Finally, what I want us to take away is that you know, this holy jealousy of God is really what starts the process of restoration of the land. That yes, God calls his people to repent and says, if you repent, then I will turn and restore you. But even before his people repent, even before he brings the judgment to discipline them, it's God's holy passion for his glory that has brought about this whole process. That God is saying, yes, I will discipline them, but I will also restore them because, right, that's the kind of God I am. I'm not going to leave my people to their own devices. No, my presence is real in the midst of them, and I want to be working in them in this way. That our repentance is not some mechanical thing. We put in repentance tokens and God gives us our blessings. No, that actually God is the one starting the repentance and bringing the blessing. And at the very end of those verses, you know, God is saying, I'm going to remove the northerner far from you, drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard in the eastern sea, his rear guard in the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. God is saying this invading force, whether it's an army or locusts or all the above, he's saying, I'm going to finally remove that from your life. That huge invasion that you thought might never end, the occupation of your country that is the worst calamity that could ever happen to you, I'm going to remove that. This thing that is weighing on you and oppressing you, I can take that away. And not only take it away, but actually cast it into the desert, send it into the sea, get rid of it in such a way that it's no longer here in your life in such an oppressive way. Saying the only thing that's going to be left is the smell of their rotting corpses, which is a really graphic image. But the point he's trying to make is this thing that you thought was so powerful, that was so oppressive in your life, that even that, the only thing that's going to be left from it is just a foul stench. That those things in our life that seem to be so oppressive on us, compared to the power of God, do not compare. That yes, they are real and painful. Suffering is real in the moment. But the Lord is saying, compared to my eternal glory, they mean but very little. I think uh, Paul kind of had a similar idea in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. He's talking about, you know, uh, his, his Jewish heritage and his obedience to the law. You know, he's saying, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews and circumcised in the right way, and I obeyed all the laws possible. But all of that was rubbish compared to what I have in Christ. All of that perfect living was rubbish compared to Christ's obedience and Christ's goodness. That the things of this world that seem important to us in the moment now will seem foolish compared to God's eternal goodness and glory. So the question as we move on that I want us to ponder is how does God's jealousy for his people and for his own glory give you hope in the midst of judgment and discipline? 
Moving on to verses 21 through 25, it says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. What I want us to notice in these verses is that the Lord is calling the land to turn from its lament and its sorrow and to embrace joy and gladness as he's pouring out his restoration in all the areas that were previously judged and disciplined. That yes, for a season, right, God may call us to repent of our sins, that that is a good thing, but that is not always true. That here the Lord is saying, okay, no longer fear, no longer be sorrowful, but now rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in his restoration. That as we kind of live in that now but not yet, we talk about a lot. That we live in this tension of yes, we are repentant people, our community should be displaying repentance for sin, but also the joy that we have that Jesus has saved us from our sins, that we're not basing uh, how much we can repent for our salvation, but it said that God has forgiven us through what his son has done on the cross, that God calls us to take joy when he is doing a work of restoration. What I love here is, uh, you know, he's kind of using a lot of creation ordering here, in these verses. He starts with the land, fear not. Then he says, beasts of the field, fear not. And finally, he says, all right, be glad, children of Zion. If you remember in creation, right, first the Lord creates the land, and then the animals, and then finally his image bears. In the same way, he's saying, all right, as I restore, I'm not just restoring people, right, but I'm also blessing everything around them, their community, their country, right, their land, the animals, the trees and the vines, all of it, I'm using to show you my goodness, to show you the power of my restoration. A great quote uh, that I found in a commentary said that the Lord actually empowers the trees to fight back and their produce overpowers the destruction of the locust army. Have you ever thought that, that God, yes, he uses his people to fight back, but also that he could empower nature itself to display his glorious power in restoring the land. That he's not just saying, well, like, let the land be and it'll fix itself. No, God is saying, I am supernaturally working to bring a restoration and a produce that is unexpected. That I brought, yes, such destruction to discipline you, but I'm also bringing such restoration that will be a wonder among the nations. That the Lord can do this. Uh, from that same commentary, it says, good crops, brimming vats, full stomachs are not ends in themselves, but are signs that God, who has seemed to abandon the people to their misery of their disaster and the mocking of their enemies, has now intervened on their behalf. That the Lord is showing them in this abundance of blessing in the land that he does hear his people's cries for help. He hears the repentance, and he is working to bring hope and restoration. 
that all of this, right, was to remind them of the importance of his presence among them, that the Lord will not abandon his people forever. Some of you maybe really need to hear that, that maybe in the midst of whatever's going on in your life, you need to be reminded that, yes, there's real suffering in this world and it does last for a time, but that the Lord is mighty to save, that the Lord can give hope where there is hopelessness, that he can shine light in the darkest of places. Hope in God's ability to restore a sinful, fallen, and broken world is really an act of defiance against the enemy and against the sinfulness of this world and against our own deceptive hearts. Right? The enemy would love for us to give up hope that God could actually fix this. That the world loves to try to instill in us a heart of cynicism, right? Oh, God can't do that. No one can fix this. Everything's so broken. Our politics are a mess. It's ultimately hopeless. And even our own hearts want to say, God, I, can I figure this out on my own? <laughs> can I get my own solution here? The Lord is saying, no, 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 I'm giving you a solution. In my grace, I am showing you, my son, that this is the way of salvation, that this is the power that can change a messed up world, that I can restore what is broken, that I can cause even the plants to fight back against sinfulness. We see that this kind of image is really similar to what we see in the book of Job, right? That the Lord for a season removed his blessing from him, but that in the end, right, the Lord restored to him, blessed him abundantly, that he gave him so much more, that yes, the Lord can restore, that yes, for a season he may take away, but his goal is always to teach us the relationship that we have with him. Another comment I found in the ESV study Bible, uh, which normally I don't get comments from study Bibles, but this was just so spot on and true to life, said, being human often means bearing loss never to be regained. And yet the Lord, the bringer of calamity, is also the Lord of mercy and abundant grace who is fully able to recompense. Man, is that not just smack of real life that, you know, in this world, in this life, many times, right, things are not always restored the way we'd like. Uh, our hope doesn't always come to fruition in the way we desire. But here the Lord is giving an example and saying that, yes, what you think is impossible is possible with God. A couple years ago, uh, I was serving in a church, and they were working kind of in a low-income community. And there was this one family there, uh, and the mother had kind of severe uh, disability with her legs, and the father was a truck driver, so he's just kind of gone a lot on work. And the daughter uh, had some kind of uh, delayed... Um, learning abilities, and they, were, they came to our church really regularly, and we really loved on them, uh, but they were just kind of, they were just a rough family, um, and they needed a lot of help, and the church was really willing to give them help, and uh, at the time I really stepped up, I was giving them rides to church and trying to help them out where I can, uh, but it just seemed like after a couple of years of this, right, and talking to them, we'd be like, you know, do you really, do you understand what Jesus has done for you? And they'd just be like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell. You know, and like, they were just, it was, it was really depressing and really sad. 
And I remember one day I, I finally dropped them off after a long Sunday of getting them for church and taking them to lunch and helping them out in their house. Just driving home and just being so depressed and sad and of like, you know, Lord, like, is, is any of our work actually helping? <laughs> is any of this doing any good? And I felt like the Lord just in that moment kind of smacked me upside the head and was like, yeah, uh, I mean, I probably looked at you the same way. (laughs) Um, That I looked at Chris Blackman and I said, what a hopeless case. And really, you were hopeless before I came into your life and before I restored you. That, you know, just because your life looks a little bit cleaner and tidier than theirs doesn't mean you were any less hopeless than they were. And yet, if I could do that in your life, and I could do that in your family's life, and I could do that in other people's lives, can I not do that in these people's life as well? And I just wept. I wept tears of sorrow for my own hopelessness and tears of joy that that the hope that we have in the Lord is that he can do that. He can restore any family. Well, God may not choose to restore in the way we desire, His passion is to see restoration at work in the world, to restore his people, and ultimately it is all for his glory. So finally, in verses 26 and 27, Joel says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. What I want us to see is that the Lord's provision and restoration reminds us that only in his presence do we have the hope of eternal salvation from sin and from shame. That the restored presence here is indicating to us that uh, the greatest famine and the worst oppression and even the worst shame that we might experience are not from food shortages or foreign invasion, but actually from being separated from our Heavenly Father. That the famine in the land, the taking away of worship in the temple is all to remind them how important God's presence is among his people. That it is essential. It is essential to our worship and to the blessing in the land. And providing food for them, he's also restoring the praise of his name. So he said the temple worship is restored. Now God's people can come together as a community and give thanks for what he has done. Give thanks for the hope that they have in him and how they've seen that lived out in their experience. They can worship that there is no God like our God who can justly judge his people, who can discipline them and lead them into a season of repentance for a time, and also restore them and bless them and give them abundance Many times in this passage it says God wants his people to be satisfied in him. That he can do both of those things and still be good. One more quote from the ESV study Bible. So the great purpose of the nation's trauma is for them to know God's presence. That he is the covenant-keeping God. That he will remove their shame. I am the Lord your God is a recognition of God's covenantal bond with Israel the perpetual removal of shame unites God's provision with his presence and peerless nature. I think that's a good reminder from the scripture that the season of discipline and judgment can be truly traumatic. 
and that in our broken world we have real sin and real trauma and real suffering and difficulty. Uh, and often, even when that season ends, it can leave a period of trauma in our lives, a period of shame at what had happened to us. And yet the Lord's promise here is that, yes, I can end the discipline and the judgment, and I can remove the shame, and I can restore the hope and the joy in you. I can restore the gladness. I can give you a fullness of life. And he's saying, yes, I can do that now in this life and even greater in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. That it's not just for later, but in a sense it is also for now as well. That we may experience pain, we may deal with shame, but the Lord says, ultimately I'm going to wipe all that away. There will be no more tears, as Revelation says. All of this restoration of hope serves as a kind of milestone of what God has done in his people's life. It reminds them uh, in the midst of later suffering and in the midst of later judgment what God has done in the past and what he can do in the future. It's saying, you know, turn to me in the midst of it. Don't look to your own abilities here. That the Lord can do what seems impossible. And what's even better for us now as the people of God is that the presence of the Lord is always with us. That through Christ Jesus, his son, the relationship with the Father has been restored. That our sin no longer separates us from him. That yes, for a season, the Lord may make us feel like his presence is not as close, so that we'd be brought to repentance. But that through the Holy Spirit, he is still with us at all times. He is with us here and now in this room as we worship and as we take joy in him. So to close, I'd like to just read from Colossians 1.13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father has taken us from this kingdom of darkness and brought us into a kingdom of light. He's taken us from a kingdom of shame and sin and brokenness and is bringing us into a kingdom of wholeness and restoration and abundance. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ is to restore what has been broken into fullness, to bring us back to that Edenic state that we had in the beginning in an even better new heavens and new earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, um, we come before you and we admit that at times we can be hopeless and that the brokenness of the world can cause us to lose hope. Lord, we thank you for your holy and intense passion for your people and for your own glory and that because of your passion for us, Lord, that you have restored hope in us. Thank you for the hope of Jesus who took the shame of the cross for the joy that we would have in him. Blessed be your name, Father. Help us to worship in joy and gladness for what you have done to restore your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.